Welcome, everyone, to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director for BCLT, and we have Michael Smith with us once again to tell us everything we need to know about Last Week in Texas. Michael, thanks for joining us again. Good to be with you. Well, let's start with something that many people think is a, is a mythical animal, and that is a summary judgment of non-infringement in the Eastern District of Texas. Well, it, it did catch my attention when it came out. What we got was a summary judgment of, of non-infringement, or actually a report and recommendation from Magistrate Judge Roy Payne to Judge Gilstrap of non-infringement in a case that was getting ready to go to trial uh, in the next few weeks in Marshall. Uh, but it's kind of an interesting uh, case. It, it grows out of a case that I actually knew something about because back in the early part of the 2000s, we had multiple jury trials involving this one plaintiff uh, in Marshall. And the plaintiff has another case getting ready to go to trial. And the defendants in that case pointed out that we had an appeal from that earlier case where the federal circuit said, these claims are invalid, this is not infringement, and, and so forth. So the issue here was the defendants came in and said, uh, there's not a triable issue for the jury because under the federal circuit's prior decision, there, there's just not an issue. And Judge Payne agreed with the defendants and said and pointed out that what the plaintiff was arguing here was, well, the federal circuit was wrong. You should disregard what the federal circuit said. This isn't what the federal circuit meant. So let us get to trial. And Judge Payne uh, wasn't having any of it. He said that that argument is doomed to fail. He said, what you're telling me to do flies in the face of stare decisis. What you're doing is presenting me with a claim construction argument for the first time that should have been raised during claim construction. So he said, binding precedent from the federal circuit says that you have to show one, two, three in order to show infringement. And your evidence in this case doesn't have one, two, and three. So a, a very interesting case, uh, and we're looking forward to seeing what Judge Gilstrap does uh, when the case gets to him, when the report and recommendation is passed on, which should happen in the next few weeks. Well, Michael, there was a, a phrase that Judge Payne used that seems like it's just fuel for a, a fee motion later on to say this is an exceptional case. Uh, but it, what's the quote? Binding precedent establishes that such evidence is insufficient. That seems pretty harsh. I think you're reading that exactly right. He, he says repeatedly, and when I was studying this op uh, opinion for my weblog, I kept having to put phrases in quotes because he's using exactly that kind of language. He's saying, you're asking me to, to go against stare decisis. You're asking me to ignore binding precedent. You're not just telling me it doesn't apply. You're saying it's so wrong, you just need to not apply it. That's just you can't do that. So I think uh, in that case, uh, you may well be looking at all this feeding into a 285 motion down the road. I, th I think it is not using the term in its legal sense. It is a very exceptional case. And uh, I, I had the good fortune to work with uh, the lawyer who argued that case at the Supreme Court. And Justice Scalia was, was getting on him about, well, give me a standard, give me a standard. And he was telling him I can't. Uh, it's exceptional. And then when he saw the opinion that came out and Justice Scalia's language, what well, stands out from the others, he was like, that's exactly as 
as open-ended as I was telling him and he was pressing me for something more. Well, it, this case is exceptional. And the most cases don't look like this. Most plaintiffs don't make arguments like this on the eve of trial. You, you kind of check your whole card and then pack up your bags and go home. So, so I think there is going to be an interesting 285 opinion uh, coming out on this, whichever way it goes. It will be telling us, are these facts sufficient to get you to exceptional? Well, another really interesting case here uh, was about a frightening situation. You lose your expert or expert reports on the, on the eve of trial. And there was a motion for leave to supplement the expert report and didn't go the, the way they wanted. Uh, but my question for you is, what really is the, the lesson that attorneys should learn, especially for the Eastern District, on supplementing an expert report? Well, the, the one interesting thing about this case is since it came out, I've had two other cases where I've been using it to explain to people the standard for when you want to come in and supplement an expert's report. Because in this case, um, you're right. We were at the pretrial conference. The judge looks at the arguments. He says, no, the damages expert can testify on this, but he can't testify on this. I'm finding that this isn't the right analysis or what, what he said was the methodology was not appropriate. So I'm striking this particular reasonable royalty opinion. And the, the plaintiff said, well, your honor, can we supplement? And he said, you can file a motion and give me your arguments. They give him the arguments on it. And it's a very good opinion because you're close to trial. You have a disagreement between the plaintiff and the defendant over how much supplementation is required. The plaintiff said, judge, we just have to change one paragraph. That's all we'd have to do. The defendant says, no, you'd have to make all these other changes. It would be a substantial change at the end. So both sides are engaging fully on the, the 16B4 factors, the good cause standard. The plaintiff saying, we made it. We ought to be able to supplement to add this. And Judge Gilstrap is going through talking about how extensive it is or isn't, how close to trial they are, whether a continuance is available. It's just a very uh, good, thorough discussion of the sorts of factors that, that you need to look at. And again, as I said, I've used this in two other cases since then, looking at, well, can we supplement? Can the other side supplement? Should we agree? Should we not agree? What's the judge going to do? It's a very helpful opinion to look at to tell you what do you do when you lose your expert or part of your expert on the eve of trial? And again, I've seen orders go the other way. I've seen Judge Gilstrap say, I'm excluding this. If the expert can correct this, then that could come in. This is a situation where he, he held that they couldn't. Well, then going back to Judge Payne, there's another interesting venue case that I think a lot of people are going to be watching, and that's related to server location. So what do we take away from, from Judge Payne's ruling here? Well, this is a, a, a soup to nuts decision because uh, in addition to dealing, it deals with inconvenience, but before that, it deals with improper venue, which is an issue that we don't see very often. After T.C. Heartland, after N. Ray Cray, we really don't see a lot of disputes over whether venue is proper or not. Well, in this case, the plaintiff said that venue was proper because Netflix it has all these servers in the district, and they're using the, um, um, uh, the Google language from some recent Federal Circuit opinions saying that Netflix has agents in the Eastern District. The ISP is acting as its agent has all this ability to do these things with the servers. 
So he looked at, at it and decided this is enough to get over the hump to where venue is proper. And that will go up because that's a, a motion to dismiss. That'll go up to Judge Gilstrap as a report as a report and recommendation. So we'll get to see uh, what Judge Gilstrap does with it, if anything. And then uh, I know the federal circuit's passed on that a few times recently. So we'll, I, I'm certain we're gonna see the federal circuit look at that. Whether they'll look at it on mandamus or whether they'll say, we'll look at this at the end of the case, uh, I don't know. But again, we have a juicy convenience analysis there too. So we'll get to see uh, what happens when that goes up. Very interesting opinion. And because Judge Payne has been seeing these orders a lot in the last 10 years, uh, if you want to know what's gone on for the last 10 years in venue, read a Judge Payne opinion because he knows where the markers are and where the data points are and what you can do and what you can't do. Taking your, your cue on mandamus there, uh, might be time to, to look at the Western District and what the Federal Circuit has been doing lately for venue well, there. We may have to have another podcast just on mandamus opinions out of the federal circuit uh, on venue, because there are a number that have come out in the last week. The only one I want to talk about today is the one that came out last Friday, which is in Ray Juniper. The same panel came out with a number of additional ones the first part of this week, but I want to take a little more time to study those because there's a lot of moving parts here. And Juniper is a good example of that. A few weeks ago, we talked about what the Federal Circuit told us in, in Ray Hulu. They looked at uh, how Judge Albright was looking at venue opinions, and they said, this is incorrect, this is incorrect, you need to look at this, you need to look at this, you can't rely on this, and you can't rely on this. Well, then N. Ray Juniper comes out, and I'm in a state bar board meeting in San Antonio, and I get a call from a reporter asking about it, and I said, well, the first thing I have to know is, what's the date of the underlying opinion? And he said, well, it's uh, September 24th. I said, no, 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 not the Federal Circuit, Judge Albright's opinion, because was it before or after Hulu? Because if it was after Hulu, then we've got a situation where the Federal Circuit's already told him, you can't do one, two, three, and he does one, two, three again. Well, he looks it up for me on the phone, and he says, no, 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 it was uh, June 23rd. I said, well, then that was before in Ray Hulu. So when I read the opinion, knowing that it's being addressed at an opinion that Judge Albright wrote back in the middle of the summer, well, most of this is stuff we already knew. We already knew that, that the judge can't say, I don't think these people are going to testify without tying it to the facts of the case. Um, he can't talk about certain things without tying it to the facts of the case. But there is something that's different in this opinion that I hadn't seen before. And that is when the opinion gets down to the factor that deals with the relative speed of trial. It starts out with telling us a few things we already knew. Judge Albright can't point to, well, I set cases quickly for trial. I set them quicker than the Northern District of California gets to trial, so I can consider that against, against transfer. Federal Circuit has said, no, you have to use actual statistics. Well, his more recent opinions have used his actual time to trial statistics, but this one didn't because it was back in June. Okay, so what the court's saying here, we already know this. We already know that the court has said that the court congestion factor is the most speculative factor, so it's not a particularly significant factor, even if it does weigh against. So as, as the Western District's time to trial starts become, to become better documented, as uh, Judge Albright started another patent case today, so there's one more data point, 
as you compare that to the Northern District of California, the, those numbers are gonna get more solid. And the circuit seems to be telling us that really doesn't matter a whole lot because this is a speculative factor. What they said that was new was that the fact that the plaintiff wasn't engaged in the manufacture or sale of products that practice the asserted patents mattered. Now, that, that was something that I hadn't seen before. I don't know if you'd seen that before in a case, but I had not seen that before in a case. So, Michael, I mean, I guess the question for you here is, at the end of the day, is the, the federal circuit kind of negating the time to trial for certain categories of cases? That's very much what it looks like. It looks like that if you are not engaged in the manufacture or sale, then the blindfold kind of comes off the lady with a sword and the scales. And well, you can go to the end of the line because you don't really need justice as quickly as other people. But that observation, I think that's an accurate way to read it. But there's two major caveats there. In the same way that the federal circuit in, in I think it was in Ray Hulu talked about judge you can't just say, I know that these 11 people aren't going to testify. You're only going to call one or two of them. You have to, but if you can tell me in that case, there's a reason to believe in that case, only this one or two people are going to testify. That's different. They said the same thing here. They said the plaintiff didn't suggest that it needed a quicker resolution because its position in the market was being threatened, nor did the district court point to any reason that a more rapid disposition in Texas was and here's a quote, worthy of important weight, close quote. Well, of course they didn't say that because nobody had ever said that it mattered. Well, now that they know that that matters going forward, plaintiffs are going to have to tell the judge, look, yes, I'm a non-practicing entity, but I still need a quick resolution. Well, tell me why you need a quick resolution. Well, because I can't afford the cost of a, a two-year delay getting to trial because my inventor is 73 years old and has immunological deficiencies and we're in a pandemic and I need for that person to be in front of the jury live at trial. We'll get to see what people believe are relevant factors that justify a quicker trial. But in general, it looks like if you're a non-practicing entity, this factor is completely off the table. But it kind of was before too. If you look at the federal circuit cases, you could not, for example, if all the other factors were neutral, we have federal circuit cases that say if everything else is neutral and this is all you've got is that you get a quicker trial in Texas, that's not it. You can't do that. So again, that is the new thing that I pulled out of this that is going to be something that I'm going to take into consideration when I'm filing these motions and when I'm defending them. It also got me thinking, if the circuit is focusing on the district court needs to make a determination why witnesses aren't necessary or why a, a plaintiff that's a non-practicing entity needs to get to trial. Well, what if a plaintiff gets creative about, well, well judge, why don't you uh, tell us how many hours you're going to have for trial and then ask the parties to put down who at this stage do we think we're likely to call at trial? I get judges that do that to me later in a case. If you do it earlier, would that be a basis for a judge to say, well, it's been my experience that a corporation rarely calls more than one employee at trial. Now that I'm looking at the facts of this case, that's what the corporation is telling me. Given the average time that we're going to have to try the case, I'm going to have a corporate representative, I'm going to have expert witnesses, and that's all I'm going to have. Okay, well, now that we know that, maybe that changes the venue analysis in a way that the circuit will accept the district court saying, okay, now this is why I'm disregarding the other 14 engineers that you've got listed on your disclosures. 
It's because when push comes to shove, you've told me you're only going to call the corporate rep and all the technical stuff is going to come from your expert, for example. So, so anyway, it's just something else that this opinion got me to thinking about. So, Michael, if I think back through the years, you know, venue motions and convenience motions used to be pretty easy. Lawyers could kind of slap them together on their own. You could download one from your system, change a few things, send it in, but they were cheap, relatively cheap in terms of patent litigation fees. You look at this new framework the federal circuits put out there, venue becomes a little mini litigation. And with its oh. own discovery, its briefing, depositions, it looks expensive. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we have to keep in mind that the federal circuit has said repeatedly that the merits don't matter early on, but venue does. You can't go worry about the merits in the case. You have to decide on venue first. It becomes a very there are a lot of, lot of arrows in your quiver as a defendant. The plaintiff has to cover a lot of territory. They've got to figure out how to make arguments that protect uh, their position under the existing case law. You, have to, you also have to anticipate, where's the circuit going to be, oh, this time next week or a month from now or six months from now when additional arguments are made? What can I do that protects my case given the direction that the circuit is going. And people have different opinions on that. I'm of the viewpoint that the circuit is moving on what they're requiring here. So you have to think, you have to kind of lead the circuit a little bit and, and be sure that you've got sufficient venue facts to survive when the motion actually gets to the court and gets resolved by the federal circuit six or eight months after you file the case. You then have to work backwards and figure out, okay, do I think I've got sufficient facts for this thing to survive? Or do I need to go somewhere else? Right now, there's just, there's still a lot of uncertainty, but I do think you're absolutely correct. It requires a lot of really good lawyering to respond to these issues. Well, Michael, once again, thank you for leading us through this week. And I think next week, we'll probably start right where we ended with more venue cases. Yeah, more venue cases. And then we, we may crack open a newspaper or two and talk about what we've seen in that. We'll look forward to it. And for those that uh, want more in-depth information on any of the, the work uh, or cases discussed today, please take a look at Michael's blog. Everything you need to know should be there. Okay. Have a good week.